Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. This week, Stephen Benedict and I drop into the 2011 film Knuckle, directed by Ian Palmer. It's his first film. It covers 12 years in the lives of three Irish traveler families. And this is a hell of a shit kicker of a film. Really complex stuff. Um, fascinating subculture. And I whew, I think it... Louis Theroux turned me on to this film as one of his favorite all-time documentaries. It absolutely is mine after watching it a couple of times, researching this film uh, for this conversation. It's really, really interesting and dark and sordid, but fascinating characters. Uh, what a film. And 12 years to make it for a first-time effort. It's... It's something. So if you haven't seen this one, I strongly urge you to watch it. But uh, both Benedict and I loved it. So I hope you enjoy Knuckle. What did you make of this? Louis Theroux said that it was one of the top documentaries that he's ever seen, which is what drew my attention to it. Um, but this was, uh, unlike almost any documentary I've ever seen. Yeah, I can, I can, part of me can see why Louis Theroux would have, um, um, praised the documentary and uh, because there are elements within the documentary, which would be appealing and sort of turn up in Louis Theroux's own documentaries is where the documentarian in this case, Ian Palmer, um, it be- befriends the subjects, you know, and that is one of Louis Theroux's great gifts is he has this sort of almost naive, I won't, say, I won't say faux naive, because I don't think he puts it on, is the way he's able to, to um, uh, sort of, not penetrate, but to sort of involve himself with his subjects and ask the most innocent seeming questions, but they're never offensive. You know, it's almost, and he's always paying the surrogate for the audience. It's the audience would be, they're entering into, um, I wouldn't call it a subculture, a small culture. Right, whether it be prisons or people suffering from opioid epidemics, and you know he asks, you know he 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 serves as the guide for us into that sphere, and somewhat similarly uh, for Ian Palmer's Palmer's documentary. But the difference is that we never see Palmer on screen, so yeah. he never becomes a real personality. Uh, he, he sort of steps back from that. But at the same time, he does. Just, he he has. Um, I think one of the reasons why. Thoreau likes it so much is because there is an epiphany. There is a, a crucial moment in this documentary that Palmer hits. And it's almost like a pivot in the documentary because at the beginning, you know, firstly, for the vast majority of audiences, especially outside of Ireland, this is an aspect of Irish culture, which would be uh, very unusual for the vast majority of people, I think. And we've got to just take into, take into account, you know, Bryn, if I can give you this statistic, the Irish traveling community accounts for less than half a percent of the Irish population. Hmm. And, um, you know, although um, outside of Ireland, and some people in Ireland refer to them as gypsies, um, they, are, they are not in any, in any way genetically connected to the Romani gypsies who would have originated in you know in, in eastern europe so the the irish traveling community is sort of a cultural and historical phenomenon mm. and it actually dates back about four centuries to the time when 
just after the civil war in England, Oliver Cromwell came to prominence and he was ordered by an act of parliament in London to invade Ireland and basically turn it into an oversized plantation. Huh. Uh, and, you know, obviously we'd been colonized for, for a while before that, but in his, um, in the, <clears throat> in his quest to establish plantations, uh, he drove hundreds of thousands of people from their homes and he rendered them sort of um, uh, displaced in the modern term. And it was from that era of trauma that some people within that, uh, the people of who, who were trauma, who were displaced, it became a tradition that they would not bed down. They would constantly be nomadic and they're moving around. And because of that, um, you know, as Ireland was resettled in the wake of Cromwell, now we got also understanding Cromwell was an absolute brutal personality. I know I'm going to this big history lesson, but um, perhaps this is one thing that maybe Palmer could have improved the documentary, just giving a little bit more context with it. Um, you know, Cromwell was an absolutely brutal personality. Um, he laid siege to and sacked a number of cities in Ireland. And, uh, you know, there was Wexford and then there was Drogheda. And he committed what modern historians consider to be genocide. And so you mentioned Cromwell to anybody in Ireland and we'll spit on the ground. You know, I'm not, I would too, right? But at the same time in England, uh, the BBC conducted a survey a, a number of years ago to, to list the 10 greatest Britons ever. And Cromwell was in the top 10. Huh. Do you know what this fucker did? <laughs> Excuse my language. They have no idea, you know. And they think he's important because he was involved in the Civil War. Well, you know, to to put it in context for maybe some of our uh, of our American listeners, the nearest equivalent that I can think of, and I have to do a, a bit of research here, would be a guy called Nathan Bedford Forrest. Not exactly the most prominent member personality involved in the U.S. Civil War, but um, when I did a little bit of research, he was a prominent general in the Confederate Army. He was a slave owner and a trader and the first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And that would give you an indication as to the, the bigotry and the zealotry that Cromwell inflicted upon the Irish people and also people in England. It was an absolute psychotic. And so it was from that trauma that Ireland suffered about 400 years ago that the, the phenomenon, the historical and cultural phenomenon of the traveling community was born. And so, as I said to you, in the wake of Cromwell, the vast majority of the Irish population resettled into to permanent homes. Now, although we were tenants in our own land, effectively there, were, there was this culture that was born to constantly keep on the move. So you couldn't be evicted, right? Uh, you were constantly traveling. And um, as Ireland established uh, our independence in the early 20th century, and we've grown as a nation, unfortunately, um, the traveling community have suffered enormous discrimination at the hands of the settled community, of which I'm one. I'm a settled person. And, um, you know, to give you an indication as to how ostracized, marginalized, stigmatized and neglected the traveling community is. And as I said, it's, it's less than 0.5% of the population. A couple of years ago, we had a presidential election. And one of the candidates is a guy called Peter Casey. And he was floundering around the bottom of the pole uh, and the, the opinion polls at about 2%. And then he came out and made a highly offensive remarks about the traveling community saying that basically they're people camping on someone else's land and they're not paying their fair share of taxes to, to society. And immediately his approval rating shot up to 30%. Jesus. And, yeah. And in come election day, he came in second. He polled 23% of the votes. Now, he actually, he came nowhere near displacing our, our, our president, our incumbent president, President Higgins. 
but that gives you an indication that the, 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 it was like the, um, what's the word, the uh, catch fire within um, uh, the, Irish, the large Irish population. And I think it's really interesting, though, just as an aside, Bryn, before we go back to the documentary, is 30% seems to be the standard percentage of a population that harbors really, really bigoted and prejudicial tendencies. I mean, we look at America, right? And if we look across Europe, 30% seems to be the, the toehold. And after that, if they can sort of persuade a wider uh, part of the electorate, they can creep up to 40, 45, and maybe 50%. And then all of a sudden, once that happens, all bets are off because they're, that core that, that, co that core of 30% are controlling the driving force, are the controlling driving force of that political movement. So anyway, so back now, sorry for the, the big historical um, backdrop that I've given you. Um, I, I think the, the documentary does very well in its um, sensitive depiction of the culture. But at the same time, there are certain um, flashpoints and key points where, where um becomes a little bit too enamored. Yeah. But then, crucially, at a certain point late in the documentary, this is after the feud between the Nevin family and the, and the Quinn McDonough's has gone on, as you said, for, I mean, he's he was 12 years documenting. This feud that it's a heart of, that is at the heart of the documentary dates back decades, you know, to actually a wedding in London. And um, the, the two feuding clans or tribes, they, they bear out, they, they carry out this um the feud through bare knuckle boxing, hence the title of the documentary. And um, they're, they're illegal, of course, right? Uh, the documentary alludes to this because there's a, they give you um, a report from the RTE, this, the, the national broadcasters, on the news. They say the police had to get involved to, to stop people from attending this illegal fight. And so Palmer is documenting uh, and filming an illegal practice. And so that part of the documentary is fascinating. We feel as though we're getting inside a culture and access to a culture that we otherwise wouldn't know about at all. And so there is, there is a, a frisson for the viewer, you know, that we're, we're being granted access to something that is illegal and that, that makes it exciting and curious and almost voyeuristic. And, you know, I, I have to admit that early on in the documentary, I was fascinated and I was enthralled by it. But at the same time, of all the document, of all the movies we've been discussing so far in this series, this for me, outside of the Emil Griffith documentary we looked at, which resulted in the death of a, of a fighter, this is by far the most violent I think we've been discussing so far. Would you? Was that fair to say? Would you agree with that? Yeah, and and just the nature of the violence to see toward the end two grandparents fighting. Um, and the way that they're fighting is so brutal and sloppy and and the tensions that are there. I mean, you have over the course of these 12 years that the director was following these three Irish traveler families, the Joyce's, the Nevins and the Quinn McDonough's. Um, while on the one hand, I agree, the access seems so unexpected and unprecedented to, to be allowed into this world close up. And again, this snuff film reality TV show in the best way, as opposed to the worst way that is now the, the mainstreaming of, of reality TV. Um, this is not scripted. These people are not ready for camera. And because of that, 
there's a realism where you just have this keyhole to peer into these lives where also, and I think a very clever tool of this story is behind the fighting, there's betting, but there's also this family secret, which the filmmaker doesn't divulge about possibly a murder. Um, I think it was suggested, I, I found in my research, uh, a caravan was destroyed and a man was killed. And this is the thing that none of the characters will discuss openly, but it is the underpinnings yeah. of the huge amounts of anger that expressed. Even when a man is knocked down, you yeah. see this rage that's there. And it's not just the individual contest. It's the backdrop that yeah. will not allow the filmmaker into uh, to, to be privy of, of what, what this special knowledge is, but you feel it every yeah. second sort of crackling behind yeah. the scenes with these families. And, and I think the other thing that drives home the violence, and I think it's very much a study of violence um, that's very powerful. I mean, I'm just reacting to it after rewatching this last night, but it's going to stay with me for a while, is you're seeing the older, almost geriatric members of the family fighting and then you're seeing the children imitating everybody. You're seeing them shadow boxing, even even throwing punches at one another in a in a gaming kind yeah. of way, where you're just seeing the cycle of violence being handed down to another generation as the adults are recognizing the futility of this to solve any of their problems. Yeah. Yeah, th that was definitely a, a part of it that was, I have to admit, attractive. Yeah. And um, really, really, really disturbing. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I, it's a question of also Ian Power securing their trust, you know, to to go into a, a community and um, for better or for worse, there is a degree of suspicion be between the settled and the traveling communities. And like I think like all minorities, uh, there is a degree of um we must keep a united front in the face of maybe the, you, you only see the police twice in the documentary firstly on the news secondly on the news but before that you saw um uh, you know we we refer to them in Ireland as gorda that's the irish word for the police and we see a member of the the police force in the distance in a car discussing the possible the, the knuckle fight the bare knuckle fight with with um michael quinn uh, mcdonough and um, it's done on a very, very long lens on a video camera. So we actually don't see the police at all. So we almost we're almost like hermetically sealed within the community We're we're mm -hmm. we are with them looking out. And that's part of the fascination. But at the same time, as you as alluded to there, the whole cause of this decade long multi generational feud between the families and their you know, tribes um, is secret. We never get to the heart of it. And I think one of the things that Palmer would have served himself better if he told us at the beginning that try as he might, he never got to the heart of it to, to the, the cause of the, the feud. Um, was there a killing? Was it a murder? Was it deliberate? If it, if it was a killing, was it deliberate? Um, and I think because the reason why I say that is because it sort of he, he sort of teases us with this notion that at the end of the movie, we are going to get the, to, the, to the reason why this happened. It's almost like, I wouldn't call it a thriller or a mystery, but he dangles it like a carrot. And I think because he doesn't get to the heart of it, he doesn't reveal it, and it, that device fails, you know? Um, and also, I just think on, on another thing, 
Um, I think it would have been much stronger if he hadn't narrated it at all, if he had instead given us caption cards across the screen. Um, I, I say that because, you know, when we're looking at a documentary, there's a variety of different ways you can use a narrator. And one of the great ways of Asif Kapadia is now doing with his brilliant documentaries on, on Senna and um, Amy Winehouse, and more recently Diego Maradona, he, he's not narrating at all. He's getting the personalities at the, close to the, the subject's life. There's another way if you can get sort of the Morgan Freeman type, you know, he's narrating like God, like March of the Penguins, that sort of thing. Or um, you can get captions or the Louis Thoreau, Louis Thoreau technique of injecting yourself into the documentary like Michael Moore. And I think in the case of Palmer's decision, it would have been better because um, as an Irish viewer, maybe it's just because my position is an Irish viewer, I hear his, his accent and I can, I can place him sociologically in Ireland. And I think if you took his voice out and put captions up, I would hear my voice, my own voice, but I'm reading it because the documentary is giving me this information. Right. So the narration, the narrator's voice actually adds as a little bit of a barrier, right? And, um, you know, it's just a, just even in terms of gender or the socioeconomic background, which Ian pa and Palmer would come from or the ethnic group. As a viewer, you can you can tell. Now, I wouldn't be able to necessarily place somebody if I were watching watching a documentary from Nigeria. I'd be looking at a translation, which means I'm reading it. And I think the engagement there is very, very different. And I think that Palmer would have served himself better um, because it would have been a little bit more objective. And occasionally, I found, um, Bryn, that the, the subjectivity of the the video camera where you're in the car traveling down these um these country lanes or going to, going to the, the the fights that are in these these um uh, work yards or on the the, the the back end of a church you know a, a graveyard in a church outside of a graveyard and um, because we you know I would have grown up in the generation where video cameras were you know were everyday objects for us. You know, I'm looking through, an, a, through a lens that I actually looked at when I was young. That very runny video quality is something that I made when I was a young man. Do you know? So I think occasionally if Palmer had sort of been able to distance himself, distance up us a little bit more from the subject, um, it would have been, uh, I think it would have been a greater documentary because I think part of it is because it's so new to us, this subject. Um, and we're so it's such a startling subject. Um, we can be distracted by the startling nature of the subject and forget about whether this is a well-made documentary or not. Yeah. It seems it's the question of content, not versus style, but of grammatical ability. Do you know it's the difference between journalism and reportage? You're just documenting it, but are you be able to are you able to give me a secondary layer to to, to the content? That's a great point, and, and I agree with you about uh, Kapadia's documentaries. I'd never seen that before. I've worked in documentaries for, for a while also, but the idea of never always using the archival material around the characters and, you know, Amy Winehouse, that was just so unexpected about such a prominent person for a period of time where it went from who's this to everybody knows this person. But suddenly we're moved into the role of almost in a participatory way by filming her, by not giving her space, by 
throwing money at her, huge amounts of money to perform, you're contributing to her demise. And then as you see her crumbling clearly towards a very early death, she gets more attention. Yeah. We can't stop. Yeah. And Senna as well, you feel the sense of doom, but hearing all the voices close to him, yeah, there's a, at once intimacy and a barrier that's yeah. created from it. Yeah, which, that's, which is very powerful. It is, and it, it shows that, you know, that the, the grammar and vocabulary of documentary is really, really rich. The way document, a documentary can come in and rake over the coals and find a new technique and a new form. Um, found footage. Now, found footage we've heard before, but you, you said archive, and that's absolutely crucial because they are, you know, Capetti is an archaeologist. He is sifting through the, the remnants of a life that's lost, and it's he's he hasn't come upon a graveyard. It's just this lost city, and he's giving voice to, to all these, um, these observers and these witnesses and participants. And in the case of um, Amy Winehouse, when I was watching it, you know, I just said, I had to just say to myself, you know, I watched those clips on YouTube and um, uh, not only that, but I looked at those headlines in the in the red tops, you know, the, the tabloid papers. And, I, you know, I, I was very, very dismissive of her. And the really, really good thing about Capedia's ability there was he actually implicates us. You know, we fed off that. We fed into it. We, we salivated over it. And he's just, you know, in, but actually not verbally saying it himself. And that's what I was saying about the, the use of voiceover and the subtraction of the voiceover. Um, he makes us sort of realize, you know, just be a little bit more cautious the next time we're looking at somebody going through a huge big meltdown in, in, in public, you know. Um, and I also think that this is another thing that we were, when we were talking about Scorsese's pictures, that Scorsese has this ability to distill the essence to, to a beautifully poetic image. Yeah. And um, despite the fact that Capadia didn't shoot one frame of footage for any of these documentaries, twice now, I think he's been able to kernelize the meaning of the documentary uh, without being at the meaning of the life. I'm not saying that he's giving Amy Winehouse's life lesson, but he's able to find twice now he's able to find images that really capture the theme of the story. The first one happens very early on in Senna. Um, uh, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is, um, Bryn, is because, you know, Palmer unfortunately doesn't have, he wasn't able to find that image. Maybe he didn't go in search of it, um, but he didn't find a commensurate image sort of to kernelize it. In Senna, it happens very, very early on when you see um, Senna's car in the garage. It's sort of in the bay of the uh, the mechanics and it's covered in this tarpaulin, whether it's a silk tarpaulin or whatever. And you see the, um, the, 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 the door for the garage being lowered in the background and the lights are going down. And it was only the second time I saw it. I said, ah, he's chosen that image because Senna is dead. Right. And this is um, this tarpaulin is um, it's almost like um, a shroud. Right. And the car is a hearse. Huh. And it's just. That's just a, it, it only happens for a split, not a split second, just a couple of seconds. You just go, that's a fantastic distillation of what it is. Is this man, his life was destroyed for a variety of different reasons, purely, you know, a lot of it down to incompetence and greed, you know. And I have to say, I'm not a fan of Formula One. And I jokingly said to you when we were doing um, 
uh, on a previous podcast, we were discussing, I, I was quoting from The Grapes of Wrath, and this was in relation to um, Fat City. Yeah. And I said, you're going to hear a grown man cry. <laughs> you're going to hear it again. I'm not a fan of Formula One, but when Senna died, when Senna was killed, I cried. Oh, because, because for me, even though I was very distanced from it, I knew enough to know that he was the ideal of perfection. You can see it from the beginning of the film, and, and I would also argue, uh, I didn't know this at the time, but the way that it was handled, I felt dovetailed a little bit with what the filmmaker was going through with the death of his mother, and you have that song, I think, called Mort, um, that's playing during the scene where Senna dies, okay. and that song is something, uh, it's, it's very spare. Yeah. It's very haunting, and it almost has this image of some sort of mythological chariot coming okay. to claim yes. somebody special. Yeah. Um, but you can feel, as I think you do with a lot of the great works of art, that the the artist is connecting to the subject. I think this is true with, you were saying earlier, with journalism, where or a, a portrait artist Whoever we're rendering, Francis Bacon said this too, that you can't render the, the subject. You're always projecting yes. onto it. Yeah. You're always seeing an element of that. You know, there's not, nothing in Lucian Freud, no matter who he's painting, you're always seeing him, yeah. the way he looks at them, the way he sees skin, Bacon too. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you that I, I like the way Ian Palmer gained this access and there is this quality of an accident on the side of the road. These fights just look like fights that break out when you, you happen to be passing a bar yeah. um, and you just stop to watch. It's, it's amusing and cartoonish. But the more you learn about these families, the more you learn that everybody who's fighting actually is related. Lots of them are second cousins. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. How can it be? If, sorry. Yeah. It, it's sorry. Go ahead. Well, and so I think what you offered is something that I think would have really assisted the film at the beginning of this. I mean, I was almost wanting to hear more is just context to frame this better. I mean, I know when I went to Budapest once to meet my extended family and they died after I, I went and I kind of knew that that was going to happen, you know, to go where my mother grew up. Uh, a distinct memory for me was it being a punchline in my family, how racist my uncle was towards the Romani population. Right. And he, when I was teasing him about it, not that it's a funny subject, but, but I mean, yeah, uh, you were needling him. I was needling him about his racism, but initially just saying, why are you so angry at these people? Like, why, why do you hold, harbor such resentment for these people? Now, he didn't speak English, so, I mean, I'm using a translator to do this. But his attitude, I remember he turned to me and through her, just I, I said, if you could get rid of all of them, would you get rid of them? And he said, like, looked at me with total incredulity. Of course I would. So I said, like, would you execute them? And he said, of course I would. And as I spent that week in Budapest, and encountered the Romani population throughout walking the city endlessly, I didn't see anything wrong with, with how they were behaving. And I would, I was gradually looking into data. This is sort of pre-Google, you know, searching. But one percent of the population, I mean, very similar to Ireland, 
and a hugely disproportionate number of the prison population. But all I encountered was them in tunnels or train stations, bus stations, trying to sell knit goods or, you know, or crafts and that kind of thing. But the general attitude toward them was so casually genocidal right, that, yeah. that yeah. I would have liked to have known a little bit more about that within the context of the Irish traveler community. Just, just what you provided listeners with, because I think at the beginning it's kind of laughable for me to watch it because I need a bit of that distance. So it's sort of like these men who seem kind of quite silly or depressing, what's motivating them. Um, they seem almost aspiringly stereotypical of, of, of what I've seen Brad Pitt play in Snatch, which Guy Ritchie seems to be celebrating just yeah. because it's it's wardrobe. It's a Halloween costume. Yeah, nicely said. Yeah. But bit by bit with these people, these three families, um, I do care about them more as a husband. I see their wives talk about them. And, and I think to your point about what Capadia would have done if I was hearing the wives and children talk about a husband or a dad who's getting beaten to a pulp and it's being filmed in this sort of snuff film style by the spectators. Yeah. And then additionally, reminiscent of a very sort of uh, professional wrestling style promotional videos, they're go goading other family members into having fights and how much money will be wagered? They're they're biting each other while they're fighting. They're headbutting each other. They're designating kind of guest referees to officiate the proceedings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it almost has the feeling of like a family picnic. And on the other hand, there is this genesis to what the proceedings are that seems very indicative of sort of where do the Olympics emerge from? We need the Olympics so we can just stop having fucking war. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, like the Battle of Troy, you know, instead of us fighting, we'll send in Hector, you send in Achilles, yeah. and this will settle the dispute. Yeah. It's in a, a reasonable way. It. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And just thinking about it a little bit more, you know, and I know that, you know, Ian Palmer would have been building this documentary along the way you know when he started out he had no he could have had no anticipation it was going to be 12 years or where the documentary was going to go because it was happening right in front of him it's not as if he was doing historical analysis but i think that it, it, when he had compiled all the footage you know maybe it would have served him better as to cut it down a little bit more and then go for a, a meta narrative because the way i see it looking at the documentary is that the, the traveling community with this bitter, bitter feud that continues on, and the characters, the personalities within the within the families, won't allow themselves to be free of the past. It's an it's an examination of trauma, extended generational trauma that goes back. You know, if you want to be <laughs> really, really stark about it, goes back to the time when we were turned into a plantation. And, it, you know, if, if you or I were to discuss this project as a potential documentary, that would be my thesis. I would pitch it to you as this is the angle that I want to take. And if you were to do one, perhaps about Budapest, you would have to take in 400, 300, 400 years, certainly back to the, to the um, Ottoman Empire, certainly absolutely back before Russia invaded or occupied. And then the crushing of the, the uprising in 56, 
got to take all these things into, into the consideration because, and as you said, really, really importantly, they're interviewing the women and children. Because, you know, it's one thing to, to document an oppressed group. But then within that oppressed group, you've got to go in and find the people who are oppressed within that group. And I think there's a very, very strong um, evidence there that it's a highly patriarchal society. And women, although we uh, significantly, they're elder women who are given granted the opportunity to speak uh, later on. Um, Michael's wife uh, was very obedient and was almost she. Uh, reticent to appear on camera before we saw the women michael turns to the camera and says you know we don't they're very shy they don't want to it was almost like he was telling them yeah. do you know what i mean and i think um the uh you know another layer that palmer could have drawn out was introduce us to the boxing and then go beyond the boxing right because you know the, the truth of the matter is that we had a dreadful court case recently that was revealed uh, in ireland where um there was seven uh, sisters brought their father to court uh, on charges of sexual abuse mm. with their aunt. In other words, he was abusing his, his own sister. And they won their case and he was sentenced to 20 years. But on the, course of the, on the steps of the court, the women, led by one of the daughters, her name is Sharon O'Halloran, she said that if, it, if they had not been part of the travelling community, they would likely have secured justice a lot earlier. Right. And so it, it's a condemnation of our judicial system where they suffered a second injury because they were treated differently, given less protection by the state. And I think, you know, if if um, but then again, you know, I'm not I don't I don't say that to criticize Palmer. The fact that he was able to secure access, you know, it would have taken how much how much longer for him to gain more trust within the community to, uh, you know, draw the women forward and the kids to talk about why do you want to be like your dad when he's beaten up? Do you know what I mean? And so th those sort of things would have added a, a second layer, a third layer to it. Do you know what I mean? Well, and I think, I mean, a, a few points. One, one is that we have to remember Ian Palmer stumbled onto this. He yes. wasn't seeking this out. He found it by chance while he was videotaping the wedding of a traveler. So in a way, he was trying to look at the traveler community in a, in a more broader context, but got sucked in to this much more visceral example or expression of this community um, and then stumbles on to Michael Quinn McDonough and meets, I mean, the main character, this incredibly charismatic clan leader, James, um, or Mighty Quinn or Baldy James, as they call him. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think, I think another thing that's important that this I don't think Palmer really made a decision, so it left it up in the air for me as a viewer, like what his intentions were. Whereas I think with Louis Theroux, uh, I think he does maintain his intentions. It is going to be a humanistic yeah. uh, examination and deconstruction. And if he's challenged, he stands up for it, saying, yeah. I'm not hiding what I'm here for. If I'm looking at a religious cult or I'm going to Israel or I'm looking at trophy hunting, um, I'm, I'm very happy to tell you where I stand on it, yeah. even if I'm unsure, um, is that if this is a study of violence, one of the things that I think makes two people electing to participate in violence a little bit different is it lets the audience off the hook that we're not just watch, going to the circus to watch a man on a wire 
possibly fall. Yeah. We, with our cheering and with our desire, are trying to shake that wire to right. make somebody fall. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We want, we, we're, you know, just like when they say if you're going to a car race, you know, with Senna, a lot of people are specifically going to watch a potentially a horrible accident. Yeah. They, could, they could do things to mitigate the risk, but it's less interesting. You could do it with football, you know, yeah. to, to take away the things that are damaging. And, and so I, I think what also draws me into this film right now, looking back at a film that came out in 2011 and the 12 years, is the face of boxing right now, The if the heavyweight champion is the the sort of hood ornament of the sport, as, as it's traditionally been, is we have a traveler who is currently the heavyweight champion. Tyson Fury, born one pound, um, named after Mike Tyson, who was the 1988 heavyweight champion when Fury was born. But you're seeing with Fury an example of the traveler community at their most charismatic, um, also at their most traumatic that he's somebody that blew up to 400 pounds. He's had drug addiction. He has he's had a lot of issues. He's been uh, expressed a lot of suicidal ideation throughout his life. We, his father has become a prominent figure. So one of the things I do love about the sport of boxing, like wine, is it becomes an expression of place. And we have an emissary to take us into what that place is. And I thought, in, in the case of this film, James was a really interesting, noble figure who was reticent to talk. He was not seeking out a fight. He was not a hyper-violent person. But nonetheless, to deal with the family strife, to get money when probably a lot of these people have difficulty gaining employment because of discrimination and acceptance in the society, um, all of that was very interesting. But I just didn't feel it was in any way meaningfully curated by the director. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, I, I don't know whether Ian Palmer was a, had, had studied filmmaking beforehand, but as you said, he was invited by a friend to film The Wedding. So it was a mutual friend of the, the Quinn McDonough family asked Ian Palmer. And, you know, probably through the conversation, of course, the day of the wedding, that's the, that's the genesis of that. So almost we're looking at Palmer as a documentary learning as he goes. Right. Um, but again, you know, um, just going back to Tyson Fury, you know, he's a little bit like um, McGregor. Right. He's exotic. Yeah. And strangely, you know, within Irish, within Irish law now, um, as I said, despite the fact that the, the Irish traveling community are in no way, they're actually in, um, indigenous Irish people, right? They're, they're not genetically connected to the Romani gypsies at all. Um, now, in order for the Irish government to protect the community, they have given them an ethnicity. They are they are defined ethnically as a minority. Therefore, they are to be to be protected against prejudice and bigotry. But that's while I laud that intention, there is a complication there because it it reinforces the otherness that right. has, has long been ascribed to them. And there is sort of a sense of exoticism about Tyson Fury and, as you said, the story and his background. Um, 
And I think that the when when they went to make the, when Palmer went to make the documentary, um, his the sense of exoticism wasn't there, but their sense of voyeurism was there because at a certain point, and I, as I was saying to you, this is the crucial point for me in the documentary is when late on. I don't know. I don't know how many years into the documentary this is, but he says, you know, James has said that he's not going to fight anymore, and he goes back to do another fight, and then Ian Palmer in the voiceover says, "I, I decided not to to film this anymore. I couldn't," and yet the the frame doesn't go black, mm-hmm. right? And so he he didn't afford us the opportunity, which he was giving himself to, to not film. Right. Mm-hmm. He he could have not. I think he should have, but it would have would have proven the way, you know, Luther, as you said, he, he he lets you know exactly where he stands in the situation. I think Luther would have cut the film. Yeah. If when he says at this point, I can't watch anymore, he would have cut off the camera. He would have shown you and let us share with him his experience as a documentarian. And now you, you can always say that we have the privilege that we can turn off the footage. Right. But the point is, that the documentary goes on without our input anyway. And I think that was one of the things that Palmer would have been, I think, would have been better served himself and the subject if he had just even just for a few seconds blacked out the screen, because then we would have known that his camera turns off and the next footage we see is from another camera from mm. someone's filming. Do you see what I'm saying? And we are seeing a lot of cameras in the frame, which is interesting. I mean, as you were saying with Capadia, in Amy Winehouse, there is a clear line of delineation, demarcation of home movies, family, friends, here's Amy, intimate, to the intimate is public. Yeah. And we're hunting her. Yeah. Wherever she goes, she has no right to privacy because, and that's what I kind of meant with boxing also, or or a lot of combat sports is if you sign on to do it, if you go on American Idol because you think you have the talent to become that, I'm watching. I'm not watching for great vocalists, particularly. 99% of why I'm watching is to celebrate your delusion being smacked by yeah. Simon Cowell and the other judges because yeah. it's thrilling to see all of the coddling you've got from your family of friends. Go on American Idol. Go on X Factor. There's a joy in me feeling completely justified in watching you crash into reality. Yeah. And, and so there was something, something with this also where I am, I'm being forced to be put in touch with my own sort of bloodlust a little bit in yeah. that boxing, boxing can get criticized and it's happened in chess also that as these guys get more and more sophisticated – it moves away from blood, knockouts, quote-unquote exciting combat, and moves into something very defensive, calculated, strategic, dry, bloodless, heartless. This is just the essence of violence that is not particularly sophisticated in its expression, so that every fight is going to end in bloody damage, uh, knockouts, and... Uh, as they bring more and more people that that don't have any physical attributes to to sort of um, defend themselves, I mean, old people that look really damaged, you're wondering why why can't I look away from this? What's the point of observing this? 
it's it's just like like a there was a a reality TV show, not a TV show, but I think videos, snuff films of homeless people paid five dollars to fight. Yeah. After this is a, this is in the wake of Fight Club. I, I remember that distinctly. Yeah, it's interesting your allusion to to drawing drawing into um, American Idol because for me, you know, I've never watched the show, so I've got to admit to my own prejudice here, my own complete cultural snobbery. I never watched the Kardashians. I just cannot partake in any of that. So people would say, well, that immediately disqualifies me from making that observation. But I will say this. I think those shows, those shows, especially American Idol and that sort of stuff, is the equi- the U.S. equivalent of Stalin's show trials. Mm, interesting. Where interesting. we put people up to rip them down. We wish to see them decimated. We want to see the lion go into that cage and claw them to death. And it makes us feel safe because at least that person is guilty of being a counter-revolutionary. And I'm not today. So, you know, I'm here in the crowd paying for the blood. And it's just it's it's just so easy. But you know, another thing that I found really really fascinating about it is that uh, for the the boxing is that they have very very strange set of rules. Now I say strange because they're not Queensbury rules, but these the, the final I'll call it a battle that we saw in the documentary. It, that fight went on for two hours. Yeah, routinely no, going for two hours. There's no break. Yeah, you know, I mean professionally. You've got three minutes and you've got a break and three minutes and a break. And it only goes around for 15 rounds. I mean, you know, I'm, I just found that really, really trying as a viewer. And then also that the layer of it was, the, so you see um, James on the phone almost commentating because he's not allowed to attend. So one of the people is, is phoning him and he's parlaying it on to other, you know, it, it, that would have been uh, um, if Palmer had maybe a little bit more backing and a little bit more time and maybe a, perhaps a little bit more trust from, from the community, he would have been able to draw out more of a phenomenon to, to examine there, you know, because I think that coming back to the entire idea of distilling the essence of the story down to an image, strangely for me, the nearest that he got to it, had, the image had nothing to do with the fight. It was when and they were traveling to England for the fight and they got on the boat and the boat leaves Dublin Harbour and you can see the docks disappearing into the distance. But when you what you look as you look at the, the turmoil that's been kicked up by the engines in the sea, you see the wake of the ship. And I thought that to me, if Palmer had been able to expand on that, that would to me would have been um, a distillation of the picture of the story because you know, it goes everywhere. They can't leave it behind them. They can't break from the past. It's always following that. It's a complete state of turmoil, which is trauma. Right. You know, they try to leave Ireland, they go to England and it follows them. It doesn't follow them, they bring it with them, you know. And I think that um, that would have been a really, really great secondary layer to, this, to the documentary if he'd been able to, and this is no criticism of because we were saying it's a question of trust, been able to get different voices going all the way through it. And I think one of the important absences was women. Yeah. You know, it's, it's significant, I think, that there are elder women who, you know, uh, who have probably have more status. Um, and even just interviewing the, the, the boys and the little girls would have bought more. But I think that's part of the thing of, you know, um, many uh, smaller societies are very self-protective. So Palmer would have had a difficulty gaining access to ask those questions. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I I 
I've always found covering covering famous boxers that the the I, I was going to say the easiest way, but I mean I think the most effective way at drawing people in that that it's not a sports story you're interested in writing about these characters is go to the wives and kids, ask them just just what is the quotidian reality of your your dad or husband being this. Watching dad get beaten to a pulp in front of thousands of people cheering. That there's a video that people can watch, that hundreds of thousands of people do watch, of his iconic great moments, but if not more, the iconic fall. And yeah. that they celebrate it, that they're waiting for it, that, you know, the people that dislike him. Um, it, it does make you appreciate having anonymity um, f from these intimate moments of, of our lives not being public. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I thought this was a bit of a time capsule in that they're distributing DVDs of these fights within their own community. Uh, they're distributing DVDs of promotional videos to try to lure uh, more money and investment to gamble in the next big fight. To, to goad and provoke. Yes, that too. Um, yeah, go ahead. There was just one other thing. I mean, you're, you're talking about um, people baying and what's the quotidian is you're saying watching your husband or your father or brother entering into the ring and knowing that they, they could come out really a severely diminished capacity. And, um, you know, however dangerous it is to boxing with gloves, surely, you know, a bare knuckle punch to the head could actually kill you, right? Yep. To, Direct. And, you know, when I was watching, I was just, and when they saw the little kids, especially one kid, because, you know, I'm a Liverpool football fan. I'm a big fan of Liverpool. And one of the kids was wearing a Liverpool jersey. And, you know, immediately I said, oh, right, right. Okay. Um, but I was just thinking, and I was, it's, it's a terrible example to refer to, but, you know, that dreadful boxing movie, The Champ with John Voight. Yeah. And Ricky Schrader. And, um, you know, when he's laid out in the slab at the end. And I thought, what would it be like in real life? To see that, you know, um, where only one punch, that's all it would have been required. And as you were saying that these are grandfathers fighting and there you can see the, the, the ravages of boxing has left on their faces. Yeah. See, one of the guys, uh, it's actually a, a, a rematch that they have uh, towards the end. I mean, he's he's really out of shape. He's obese, you know. And um, all it would have taken for the younger fighter, for, for I think it was Michael, wasn't it Michael Quinn? Uh, when he, because he'd been training for quite a while to, to, for this fight. And he was in very, very good shape. I mean, he yeah. was very fit. And the only reason I think why he wasn't able to get in there was because the other guy's reach was longer. And um, obviously maybe his technique wouldn't have been that agile to get around the, the, the long reach. But you know, I'm just grateful in a way that we didn't see a punch being landed that would have, you know, the guy would have fallen not onto a canvas, he would have fallen onto a hard brick. Right. You know, jeepers, just, it's just, you know, and I think just bringing it back to, to what I was saying, it's it's an examination of trauma. That's the way I, or not only the examination, it's a depiction of trauma. I didn't think it particularly examined it, but um, it's, it, it, I think it was well titled. Yeah. You know, we were talking about, you know, Ring of Fire last time with the Emil Griffith story, which is poor title. This is a well-chosen title. It is. No, it, sta it stands out. And yeah, and I think also 
I like that we're doing this coupling with Snatch where in a superficial exploitive way, taking this community and slapping Brad Pitt in a Halloween costume of it. Uh, there was pathos here. It was ethos. It was meaningful. It's something that I want to reflect upon, if not to rewatch. I'm not particularly surprised Ian Palmer, so far as we know, has done anything after this. Yeah. Because he, you know, he stumbled onto, he sort of didn't climb the rainbow to get to the pot of gold. He just was in the pot of gold and was trying to make sense of it, it yeah. seemed. And I, I was reading a review for this in the New York Times. Good reviews. This was a critically acclaimed film. Louis Threw was not the only person who appreciated it. But, I mean, HBO was going to turn it into a series. It sounded like there was some real momentum to turn it into something. But I've not really heard much about it beyond the, the people at Vice sort of slapping on a safari cap and off they go into it, again, in a very seemingly superficial kind of way about this attitude they seem to have of, holy fuck, I'm, I'm in the, the Irish traveler community and they're beating the hell out of each other and we've gained access. There's not much more uh, substance, seemingly. But I found this to be powerful and sad and depressing. And, and I agree with you, trauma and, and an interesting study of, I think, our our ambivalent relationship to violence, at least our ambivalence to take responsibility for our attraction for violence. Right, right. It's just just as a as an anecdote, a final anecdote, um, Bryn, there is a very fine actor who's emerged from the traveling community in Ireland, a guy called John Connors, an actor writer. And he, he came to prominence on a TV show, a crime drama a couple of years ago called Love Hate, which is by far the most popular show ever drama show ever created in Ireland and uh, when it, I think it ran for six maybe seven seasons and when it was coming towards a climax I mean you could have walked down Main Street in any town in Ireland and you would have been unopposed nobody would have been out in the street everybody tuned in for the final episodes of the show and then John went on to write uh, a script for a, a gangster picture called Cardboard Gangsters mm -hmm. which he won the Irish Film and Television Academy Award for Best Actor that year and um, it also that movie won best feature at the New York, the Newport Film Festival. And um, the, uh, John Connors has, has now gone through this very, very strange um, fire where he was he had anonymity within his community. And then he becomes a, a, a support actor in this TV show and then becomes a, a movie star in Ireland. And because of that, then he becomes, quote, the spokesman for the entire community. Hmm you know the enormous pressure is thrust on him because he becomes the representative and it's not in anywhere nearby choice and um you know unfortunately early in the year uh he was i think he was manipulated into aligning himself with the political movement in ireland and he very very quickly stepped away from it but that just gives us an indication as to when when we're examining small cultures and minority groups uh, the danger is obviously to uh, to render them other, to exoticize them, but also then to assume that one of the personalities becomes typical or is a spokesperson for that group. And, you know, that is maybe, if, if someone were to follow it up, another documentary filmmaker is to go back to the, the Nevins, the Joyces and the Quinn McDonough's and maybe take it up um, with, a, with a broader perspective, yeah. you know, 
because just to finish it off, we have very, for the very, very first time ever, um, a woman from the traveling community was, was elected to the Senate. Um, her name is Eileen Flynn. Now, I've got to just uh, preempt that a little bit by saying it's not actually when we, uh, when we vote people into the Senate in Ireland, strangely, the vast majority of the population, the, the electors aren't involved in the process, which is very strange. It's actually a loaded dice. The government um, members of different political parties make nominations. And another group that's only allowed to vote is you can only another section that's only allowed to vote if you're a graduate from universities which I think is just obscene. I have been to two of those universities as a student and I've never been invited to vote. <laughs> so it's just, even within that clique, you know, there's another, it's another elite group that are allowed to vote for people for the Senate. So, but, you know, um, Baby Steps, Eileen Flynn is her name. She's the first woman of the traveling community. And she's actually, I think she's the first woman from her, from the, her group, from the, from the, um, the community, by which I mean clan, to go through third level education and secure a university degree. You know, so there are there are pathways and there's a little bit of progression uh, happening. And I think I think that would be um, uh, an interesting story to return to if someone were to to go back to the to the to the families and see where it is now, because it's a it's, that's what nine, nine years ago. Right. Yeah. yeah. Nine years ago. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you, Stephen. Well, thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring.